Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 531 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 7th of February 2021 as I record this, still in lockdown three here in the UK. So today's show I'm talking to David Farland about how publishing has changed in the pandemic, the long-term view of creating intellectual property assets, one of the themes of this show, story arcs that can satisfy an audience who love binge consumption and more. Now, David has been in publishing for 40 years-ish, and he's one of those generous writers. He shares his thoughts openly, and he's always really patient, and uh, he's, he's a really interesting guy. So I hope you enjoy the conversation today. In publishing news, well, the biggest news this week has been Jeff Bezos stepping down as CEO of Amazon in Q3 2021 to be replaced by Andy Jassy, who has headed up AWS since 2003. And AWS Amazon Web Services is way more than web services these days. And very interesting that he is going to be running the company. Now, I've seen some authors in various Facebook groups saying, oh, it won't make any difference. But I actually think it is a sign of things to come. And it's not a surprise because everything changes. And uh, in Wired, Stephen Levy reports a conversation he had with Jeff Bezos in 2018. He says, uh, Jeff said, I won't be I won't spend any time in my life working on anything I don't think is important. I'm just not going to. I don't need to. And the fact is, the antitrust hearings are going to continue this year or next. And basically, I think Jeff would rather be working on Blue Origin and going to space. As if you know anything about Jeff Bezos, he uh, Star Trek is not fiction. It it's the future. <laughs> so yes, humanity going to space, I think will keep him occupied. He's ready for the next business. And uh, Andy Jassy, I hope he's being paid very well, because I think he's going to have to spend a lot of time in Congress at antitrust hearings. In fact, Fast Company reports that Senator Amy Klobuchar, uh, Klobuchar, maybe <laughs> Americans will know better than me, introduced an omnibus bill this week that would reform antitrust law and retool regulatory agencies to confront anti-competitive behaviour by big corporations, notably tech companies. And she has a book coming out called Antitrust, if you want to read more about that. But with a Democrat in the White House and narrow Democratic control of both houses in Congress, the uh, Fast Company says the stars may finally have aligned for antitrust reform. The House subcommittee released an exhaustive report on the business practices of Amazon, Apple, Alphabet, which is Google's owner company, and Facebook, finding that the companies hold monopoly power. Uh, the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission filed lawsuits against Google and Facebook. This will go on for a while, for sure. And I can see why Jeff would want to go and play with rockets. <laughs> so this is really interesting. But what I think is more interesting, I mean, such is the way of companies. And it is notable. Uh, there's been a lot of things saying, oh, the only big founder left in Silicon Valley now is Mark Zuckerberg. Um, but he's, what, 15 years younger, maybe even 20 years younger than Jeff Bezos. So yeah, he'll probably be around a while. 
what is interesting about Andy Jassy is because he hand headed up AWS and he obviously is very well developed in that space and he has a lot of interest in AI as a service. Uh, VentureBeat reports that in a conversation with Silicon Angle in December, Jassy said he expects the majority of applications to be infused with AI in the next five to 10 years. And of course, AI as a service is basically what AWS is uh, one of the things that they do. So what does all this mean for us? Well, we're just the little guys. <laughs> but it is still about the basics. Write good books, because if you have intellectual property assets, whatever changes in the world of applications and companies, you'll be able to put them out in whatever other ways you can. So build your assets, build your email list so you can directly reach readers, even if you have to change platforms. Use the tools that are available while they are available. And I think that is really important. You, We've seen so many things change, you know, <laughs> I, having come to the realisation that I've now been doing this 15 years, uh, which feels feels like a long time, except when I talk to someone like David Farland, it makes me feel better because I'm like, oh, you know, you can be around a long time and still be doing really well. <laughs> but yeah, use the tools that are available while they are available. So for example, there's a lot of talk about how uh, Facebook ads might be affected by the change of iOS. Well, sure, maybe. But in the meantime, use Facebook ads and who knows what will happen or uh, that Amazon ads are getting more expensive. Well, then, you know, maybe you can't use them anymore, but you could use other things. So this is this is what we have to keep doing as authors, as online people is use what we can while we can and build the uh, the basics while we do that, which is, as I said, intellectual property assets and an email list. With these two, you can pretty much weather any storm. And if you own and control your intellectual property assets, you will always have a choice to do things differently depending on what changes. So in my personal update this week, I finished the second pass through How to Make a Living with Your Writing, the third edition. And I mentioned last week, so my first uh, edit, hand edit, I print the whole book out, I scribble all over it. And that first scribbling is pretty epic. Those pages are well scribbled. But then after I've updated all of that in Scrivener, I print it out again. And that second pass should be not too many scribbles per page, like you know, a couple of scribbles per page, but not too many. And in fact, if there are too many in a chapter, I'll do another pass. But this was pretty good. So it's with my proofreader. I'm really pleased with it. It's definitely packed full of useful ideas. I've got loads more ideas. So uh, I know you're going to find it useful. I'll have the ebook pre-order up this week. It will be out March 15th, 2021. And I, <laughs> what I'm slightly nervous about now is I don't really know how to replace the edition on the various stores because I've got a series and it's kind of replacing one of the existing books in the series. So I'm going to have some fun this week figuring that out. I'll let you know if there's any issues. So now I have to get into the formatting, audiobook narration, all the finishing energy tasks that we all know and love. Uh, I also have a few admin things to catch up with after just ignoring everything last week as I, I had some really hardcore days. I had one like 10 hour editing day that did actually break me. <laughs> I, was, I was in quite a lot of neck pain. You know, when you're, if you're editing by hand, you're kind of bent over your desk. And I did not keep to my practices of stretching regularly enough. So there you go. Can't get away with it. <laughs> so yeah, and then I'm going to, I'm going to do this short story that I've got a dictated first draft. So I'm quite excited about that. I did read something that really annoyed me this week. I'm not going to uh, announce who wrote it, but someone from the publishing industry who is not an author uh, basically said that if you want to be an indie author, you will spend more time marketing than writing. And 
I was thinking about that when I listened to the Six Figure Author podcast this week. I highly recommend you go and listen to it, but only if you can cope with uh, comparisonitis. <laughs> because they had uh, Elena Johnson, who writes under multiple pen names and has like over 100 books. She's seriously prolific. And even Lindsay Baroka, who is one of the most prolific authors I know, sounded pretty impressed. <laughs> So what was so interesting is Lindsay and Elena, you know, can write 10,000, 15,000 words in a day. And that I have definitely never done that, barely that in a week. And this is so interesting to me because this person in the publishing industry was basically saying, well, you know, if you're going to self-publish, then forget writing time. You'll just have to be marketing. But indie authors are putting out way more books than traditionally published authors, like really way more books. So I just can't see how that is true because the reality is once you get your marketing sorted, you don't have to spend that much time marketing and don't count podcasting. Don't count what I'm doing here. Podcasting is a completely separate business for me really now. It's its its own thing. Uh, but in terms of marketing, once you have enough product, you only have to kind of go in and tweak various things every now and then, book a few promotions and, and then get on with it. So yeah, anyone who thinks that indie authors actually spend more time marketing than writing, as in the established ones, should look at the Six Figure Author podcast with Elena Johnson. I really enjoyed the interview, actually. So yeah, and she does have some books for authors. You can learn more from her. But again, avoid comparisonitis. Uh, I, but it does does bring me back to, wow, I really want to sort my process out. Like, for example, this short story, I walked for 10k or whatever it was, and I dictated 2000 words. And I do need, obviously it needs a lot of editing, but I was really happy with that. And that's kind of what I want to do. Kevin J. Anderson, who's been on the show, walks and dictates. That's how he writes. And I still, I, tr I keep trying it, but because I'm not an outliner, I need to figure that process out really. And I was encouraged by what Elena said on the Six Figure podcast, Six Figure Author podcast, is that she learned to outline. So, we all have our journey to go on. So yeah, something I still want to come back to. And yeah, the pandemic keeps bringing us back to this question. How do you want to spend this short and precious life? And I did, I wrote on my wall again this week because I had a pretty dark day yesterday. In fact, I don't know what it is. I think I said this last weekend, like Saturday seemed to be pretty dark for me. <laughs> At the moment. Uh, you know, lockdown three is the hardest here in the UK. We we can't really go anywhere. There's nothing open. It's I, I see pictures of people doing stuff in various countries and I'm I I can't help but want that too, you know. And I, I miss my friends, I miss my family. I miss just like Jonathan and I were lying in bed this morning. We were like let's go out for breakfast. That would be a really good idea. If we leave now, we can get to the cafe and it won't be too crowded. And we were kind of, you know, fantasizing about what we would order for breakfast. It was quite hilarious because of course we can't do that. <laughs> but yeah, this I've heard from quite a lot of people that this lockdown is, is the hardest. I think because the weather's so bleak and we had the sort of false dawn of everything would be all right because of the vaccine. But yeah, I feel a bit like one of those caged animals you see at the zoo, pacing backwards and forwards in the same spot over and over again and turning around and doing it again. Eyes fixed on this horizon that you can't quite see. <laughs> yeah, we're still only allowed out once a day for essential food or exercise. And the toll on mental health is definitely 
tougher this time, I think. For me personally, I know it's very difficult for a lot of people and I'm certainly grateful for a lot of things. Anyway, if you're struggling, I hear you. And again, it's about comparisonitis. You know, you can say, oh, people have it a lot worse, but you can still feel really bad some days. And yeah, anyway, I wrote down on my, you know, I put a lot of things on the wall and I wrote down, I want to write the books I want when I want and travel where I want when I want. Like that is literally my desire. And of course, it's about freedom. It's about creative freedom. And it's about life freedom. And that's nothing new. But what's interesting to me uh, is I wrote that it's got there's no financial number on that. And it's not about winning a prize. And it's not about hitting a certain rank. And it's not really about external success. It just comes back to how I want to live every day, which is create and travel. (laughs) And as an indie, you know, we can have these things. I can have these things, but just not during a pandemic. I certainly have the write the books I want when I want at the moment. So yeah, I guess what I'm coming back to is I really just try and keep narrowing down what I want to achieve in this short, precious life. And those are the those are the things. So, yeah, maybe if you haven't had time to think about this yet, (laughs) good time to think. And I mainly want to improve my systems and my productivity because I I, the list of books I want to write grows and grows and grows all the time, especially now I've got the travel thing going under the books and travel podcast and I'm starting to get ideas around travel books I want to write (laughs) as well as novels as well as non-fiction other things so yeah ah so many things to do In useful stuff. Well, coming back to marketing, there's a new free ebook available, How to Market a Book, Overperform in a Crowded Market from Reezy CEO Ricardo Fayette. It is a free ebook. You can also get it in print. Uh, and I actually ordered the, I had a look at the ebook and then bought the print because uh, Ricardo really knows his stuff, both in terms of content marketing and also paid ads. And Ricardo, yeah, is a, a wealth of information. The book is full of tips. And what I like is that it starts with the marketing mindset, which we talked a bit about last week. It's also got information on selling wide as well as on Amazon box sets, audiobooks, and even translation. So yeah, absolutely check that out. How to market a book. And then amusingly, someone emailed me to say, Ricardo, this guy Ricardo has a book out with the same name as my own book, because I have a book called How to Market a Book. And What's funny is I remember when I published my How to Market a Book, the first edition, which I think would have been 2013 or something like that. And I had an angry email from another author who also had a book with the same name because I put mine out and it kind of topped theirs in the store and everything. So a couple of things on this. One, there is no copyright on book titles in English anyway. But of course, you need to watch out for trademarks. For example, you wouldn't have a book title that used Harry Potter in the title because Harry Potter is a trademark, not just part of a book title. Um, So I think that's really interesting. No copyright on book titles. So yeah, you can write a book called How to Market a Book as well. Not a problem. Also, The other thing is, if you have an abundance mindset, you welcome this kind of thing. I want Ricardo's book to do really well because, surprise, if you go and have a look, my book is going to appear in the ads and also the also bots, most likely, because we share an audience. And it's a keyword thing. And books with titles like this are likely to boost my 
sales as well. So people who might like Ricardo's book might also like mine and thus happy days. This is why we can we should promote people whose books are similar to our own because it will help us too. So th- that's the abundance mindset which is it's not about like protecting oh you well, you can't put that book out because it's got the same title. No, it's happy happy days the more the merrier as far as I'm concerned. In futurist stuff, VentureBeat reports this week that Microsoft has launched Custom Neural Voice in Limited Preview, a service that allows customers to create custom voices with AI. You guys know I've been talking about this for ages, uh, but this is interesting because this is Microsoft. Now, it is uh, a limited service at the moment, so you can't do it. And they are being incredibly careful with it because presumably it's really good. They are also working on a way to embed a digital watermark within a synthetic voice to indicate the content was created with a custom neural voice. Now, this is really interesting. One, it presumably means it's so human-like that they need a way to differentiate it. And I like this idea of some kind of um, mark inside the file so that people know. And this is what they're trying to do with deep fakes now is try and figure out a way that you could tag things or make it clear that this has been manipulated. And uh, Microsoft, VentureBeat basically says Microsoft is going toe-to-toe with Google, which in 2019 debuted AI-synthesized WaveNet voices and standard voices voices in cloud text-to-speech. Amazon also launched Brand Voice that uses AI to generate custom spokespeople and also and uses Amazon Polly, which we've been talking about for, for a while. This is another step toward AI narration of audiobooks. And the article does note, as I had said before, synthesization could boost actors' productivity by cutting down on additional recordings and pickups. So as in, you could use the AI voice of an actor to fix any mistakes. It could free them up to pursue creative work and enable them to collect residuals. So, yeah, I think narrators should be looking to license their voice, potentially make more money. And also, yeah, if you if you are a narrator, for example, you could make your own voice and use that to fix any mistakes rather than having to re-record stuff. So I think that's interesting. Uh, and AI is going to expand the possibilities of audio. I really do believe that, not reduce it. It is. This is just like I was saying about the book title. This is an abundance mindset. This is, it grows the pie. It doesn't shrink the pie. Also <laughs> on AI, Orna Ross interviewed me on the current state of AI and writing services on the Ask Ally podcast this week. We go into nonfiction and journalism, copywriting, advertising, content marketing, poetry, fiction, and narrative nonfiction tools, talking about what's available now and what's coming. The interview is called Writing in an Age of Artificial Intelligence, and there's an audio podcast on Ask Ally, A-L-L-I, or a YouTube video if you want to see me get super enthusiastic. <laughs> which of course I do. (laughs) Okay, so thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. Julie Cordoner said, love listening to Sarah Painter on the podcast. I've missed the worried writer. It was a cold day at the beach, but you both kept me engrossed in the topic, trying to love marketing and sent lovely cold pictures on a wintry beach in the sun. Beautiful pictures, Julie. I loved them. Edwin Downward says, listening to the Creative Pen interviewing Sarah Painter, it hit me like a load of bricks that in backing away from all the career author voices, I've also let too much of the writing as a business mindset go. I can be a serious writer without being a career author. That's absolutely true. And I think what Edwin means by that is 
I don't need to be a full-time author in order to be a serious writer. And a serious writer is looking at things like marketing, um, but you don't have to be a full-time career author. I think that's what you meant, Edwin. Let me know if I'm wrong. (laughs) And just a couple more. Uh, The hiking writer on Twitter sent a picture from the Appalachian Trail uh, and a flickering log fire, listening to the creative pen on a cold night, learning a bunch of useful stuff. Thank you for putting these out there. I love your positivity about the future. And I got this picture and I'm like, the Appalachian Trail by a log fire. Yes, I would like to be there right now. please anywhere but bleak February lockdown. Uh, My dad actually says that February is proof there is no God. (laughs) So it is pretty bleak to be honest and we've got the beast, the beast from the east again this week. Fun times. Uh, Also Katya Nauf says um, the interview was great especially the part on protecting your mind from anything that might undermine your self-esteem and optimistic view on what you are attempting attempting to accomplish I had a hunch but was very helpful to hear it spelled out so yes uh, that's for a comment from YouTube protecting your mind from anything that might undermine your self-esteem is really important right now and uh, probably my miserable uh, mindset yesterday was wasn't helped by a bit of doom scrolling just can't help it some days right it's like ah doom scrolling right today's show is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life and I will play a word from them in a minute also just to say I checked my global Kobo map this week for the final draft of how how to uh, make a living with your writing I have now sold books in 162 countries which I'm super proud of so uh, thank you if you have bought my books all over the world and what I'm going to try and do is get a list of the countries I'm missing (laughs) basically I have to bribe people to start buying my books in other countries So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my brain (laughs) is sponsored by my patrons. And uh, clearly I need a lot more coffee at the moment or maybe less coffee. Unclear. Thanks to new and returning patrons in the last few weeks. Lisa M. Lilly, Kimball Peterson, Jax from Revolutionary War and Beyond, Stephanie J. Tia. Thank you to everyone supporting the show on Patreon and uh, continuing or increasing their pledge at this time, especially those of you who've been supporting the show for years. You can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month and you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio and you get to ask, ask your personal questions and I answer them and you can be anonymous if you like. So you can support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. Here's a word from Kobo Writing Life, and then we'll get into the interview. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm Joni. And we're from Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors, and our team of dedicated book lovers are always working hard to help authors reach new readers around the world. With that in mind, we want to tell you about Kobo's subscription reading service, Kobo Plus. This program has been a great success in the Netherlands and Belgium, which is why we decided to bring it to our home market and launch Kobo Plus in Canada. The great thing about Kobo Plus for authors is that it reaches an entirely new audience who may be trying digital reading for the first time. We also ensured that authors retain control of their books. Do you want to try out a book in Kobo Plus in Canada, but not in the Netherlands? You have the option to do that. Simply select the areas you want to be included in the rights and distribution section of your book. 
My favorite feature for authors is that there's no exclusivity with Kobo Plus. You can sell your books wherever you choose, and we encourage you to make your work available to as many readers as possible. It's a great way to gain and build an audience. If you want to learn more about Kobo Plus or Kobo Writing Life, check out our blog, podcast, and find us on social. You can create your free account at kobo.com slash writing life. Back to you, Joanna. David Farland is the multi-award-winning and international best-selling author of over 50 novels and anthologies across science fiction, fantasy, and historical fiction. His non-fiction books for writers include Million Dollar Outlines and Drawing on the Power of Resonance in Writing, and he offers courses and online community and workshops at mystorydoctor.com. So welcome back to the show, David. Thank you. It's great to be here. Oh, yes. And it's been a while since you were on. And you've obviously been writing and publishing since the late 1980s. And I wondered what your thoughts are on the current state of publishing, especially since the pandemic seems to have driven so much online. It's interesting because uh, we've had two publishing worlds for the last decade. And, and we've had the traditional publishing, and yet we've had this huge boom in indie publishing. About 55% of the money paid to authors uh, uh, up a year ago was actually paid out to authors who were who were indie publishing, and that's turned into a really good market. But this year, with the closure of so many bookstores and the COVID regulations, we've seen about an 18% increase in the in the number of sales in the indie market. And I'm it's creating even a bigger boom in that market. So the indie market's going great. The traditional market is on rough times. A lot of the publishers have been closed and a lot of the the book printers have even been closed. You can't even get the books printed. I think that's changing. Things are warming up, but it's been a long, tough year for the traditional markets. What do you think will change for traditionally published authors or what will traditional publishers do now? Are they going to change their business model to be more like indies? I think so. The truth is that for the past 10 years, indie or the traditional publishers have been demanding more rights from authors. So the advances have gotten smaller. I've heard people say that 30,000 is the new $100,000 advance. And that, and yet at the same time, they're taking a large amount of the money that comes in from the, from the digital rights. And if you're, if you're selling as a, as a indie author, on Amazon, you can earn up to 70% of the of the money that's paid. Whereas with traditional publishers, you're usually only getting 15% of the sale. So you're taking a mighty big hit. A lot of that money's going to the to the traditional publishers, and that's how they're staying afloat. I think that what's going to happen is that traditional publishers will keep demanding more and more rights. And so they'll ask for more from authors. And by doing that, they make it a less attractive proposition until authors start to realize, gosh, I can make more money this way. I was just talking to an indie author who who went traditional and has been doing quite well, but he makes half a million dollars on a book. And and in traditional publishing, he's only getting about $150,000 out of that. And so he decided that, yes, he's going to go ahead and go back indie again. That's the method that he's using. I don't know that I want to mention his name, but he's one of our big authors that's in the indie market and has made that transition. And so I see it almost as a bridge 
where people start out as indie, they make it good, they get traditional publishing deals that broadens their appeal, broadens their name recognition, and then uh, suddenly they can find themselves back in the traditional or in the indie market. But as an indie marketer, he's using Kickstarters to go out and get his books published so that he has books that are in print that are in the major bookstores and, and stuff around the country. So that's a really good model for him. It is interesting because I was researching more on Kickstarter. I feel like Kickstarter has been around for, I don't know, maybe a decade now, like at least yeah. eight years. Yeah, something like that. And and when obviously you and I have both been in the publishing industry that long, and I feel like when it arrived, I thought I'll never do that because I don't like that idea of asking for money up front. I don't want to do that kind of thing. Because what the projects that were done on Kickstarter at the beginning seem to be quite different to the ones that people do now. And I was looking again the other day and I was like, wow, you can really do some interesting things with Kickstarter now. Have you been looking at that too? Because obviously you have a really big audience. Yeah, I'm just doing a Kickstarter now. It's not really me doing it. There's a, a little tabletop game company that's doing a game based on the Rune Lords. And I'll send you the link because I don't remember the link exactly, but it's Red Gin is doing it. But they're doing a tabletop game and they're looking for $50,000. And we're about halfway, we're over, over halfway there after a week. The, the point being, though, that this is a great way to build an audience while you are trying to earn money for your project. You find people who like to do it. And if you do it really well, you can make a lot of money. One of my students, Brandon Sanderson, ran a Kickstarter a couple of months ago and made $6.7 million to do a collector's <laughs> edition of one of his books. And it was a 10th year anniversary of the book. So it's not even a new release. This is just a collector's edition. But he's done a number of Kickstarters. I think he's done about 12, 10 or 12 of them. And, and so he's built up a huge audience on Kickstarter, and that's a great way to go. So it, it really added to his audience. I don't think that Brandon has ever had a, a $7 million contract for one of his novels yet. I don't know that for sure, but but that's a huge money amount of money for an author. And that's enough to live on for the rest of your life just off of one book. Oh, yeah. And I've been using his example quite a lot recently because it was a special edition reprint of an old book. That's what's so brilliant. It wasn't even a new book. But as you say, like publishers seem to be taking a lot of rights. Like I saw someone forwarded me a contract recently where it said all formats existing now and to be invented. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm sorry, that is ridiculous. How could and, and someone like Brandon, who obviously very savvy, kept special edition or and, and managed to make that much money from it but you're obviously you have a lot of students you see a lot of things going on in the publishing industry this all formats now and to be invented is that a contract term that people should consider or, or negotiate i think it's a deal killer because if you look at brandon i've tried to do this with with my publisher to to see about doing special editions and they just said no even if i pay them money and and pay them a royalty on each one they wouldn't do it and so what you have is your publisher acting as a bottleneck and brandon was smart enough that i was i actually we were driving to do a book signing together when he came up with the idea and mentioned that he wanted to do these collector's editions someday and thought it was a really good idea. And this was like in 2000, I'm going to say 2007 or 2008, something like that. And, and so he, he went and carved out the rights on his next contract. So I think you have to do that. You have to be, you have to be planning ahead for these kinds of things. 
Mm, no, I agree. And so with your students now, you mentioned maybe going indie to trad back to indie and, and there's sort of people doing hybrid like Brandon doing a bit of both. Is that the best career now is keeping options open, doing a bit of both or what do you yeah. advise? Yeah. yeah, it's called a hybrid author. And there, there's a recent survey that I saw. And once again, I'm going to tell you, I can't <laughs> remember where I saw it at. But but they were looking at they, what they did was they did a, a survey of about a thousand different authors. And some were traditional and some were authors who were indie only. And they, they found that the authors who were hybrid authors who stepped into both worlds made about 30% more money. Now, that might not seem like a lot of money, but if you're making $100,000 a year, $30,000 becomes a pretty good safety cushion if you're making an extra $30,000 a year. I'm of the opinion that you never know where your next meal is coming from as an author. You don't know if you're going to get a big deal in in a, a country like... I have one author that I know who quit writing because her books weren't making any money. And then she became a number one bestseller in Poland and made millions of dollars in a very small country. Okay. And as a writer, you just never know when you're going to get a deal like that. And so you have to try to keep your options open. Yeah, because as you've talked about in Million Dollar Outlines, you actually talk about intellectual property and how your Rune Lord series, which you just mentioned with that tabletop game is another example. You said it's made you multiple seven figures in terms of income over its lifetime so far. If people don't really get it, can you explain how that intellectual property works and maybe what are some of the other forms of income that you've made from Rune Lords? Sure. Yeah. When you're writing a book, I want you to think of it not as a book. Most people are hobbyists and and they think of a book and they hope that they're going to be able to sell it to their local publisher. And I know people who make the mistake of going in, let's say they're writing in Australia and they were like, I'm going to go to my small local publisher because I know the lady down the street and I'm hoping that she'll take my book. And that's their goal is to sell to the lady down the street. But when you're a writer, what you are is you're an international business person, okay? You sure you are creating books and you should sell them all around the world. And so your goal isn't to sell it down the street, it's to sell it down every street. There are authors that I know, for for example, Dan Wells, one of my one of my students that was with Brandon Sanderson in his 318R class years ago. He went out and his first book sold okay. He got a a nice little deal in the US. But then his agent took it and got a huge deal in Germany. And then that led to a big deal in France and another fantastic deal in England. And so he was selling his books all around the world and had to quit his day job just after about two months, just so that he could keep up with uh, with his writing career. And he made hundreds of thousands of dollars by doing that. And so we're always looking uh, to, first of all, foreign rights. But then we look to other things. For example, this tabletop game. I've got a meeting on Sunday to talk with a guy about a video game for the Rune Lords. Okay. I have, I've got three movie companies right now who are looking at doing the Rune Lords as a TV series. And then you've got the possibility, of course, of doing audiobooks and electronic books and on and on. So when you sell a property like this, you don't know where it might break out. When I got a, a to Japan, for example, my advance that came in was for, I think it was a $100,000 check from a little country that I expected a 
couple thousand from. I had no idea. So that made a nice, a nice Christmas gift because it came <laughs> just the day before Christmas. You just never know where it's going to break out. And you never know when it's going to break out. I've known authors who write a book, like I told you about uh, my friend who quit writing in the United States and her book went on to make millions of dollars in Romania. But then 15 years or well, it was about maybe 12 years later, not closer to 15, it was published here in the US again in hardcover and made millions of dollars again. It's like when you create a property, you don't know where it's going to take off or when it's going to take off, but you have to prepare the grounds so that it can take off. If you have a little deal, a little contract that you know limits you and says, we're going to publish in all rights in all formats and hold these rights forever, you've just given it away. And you don't know how well that publisher is going to promote your work or if they're going to be able to do it properly. And you're taking a huge risk. And so that's why I say a, a deal like that for me, it would be a deal killer. I do think having this long-term view is so important. And I feel like that's maybe one of the problems that the indie community has because it's so focused on algorithms and immediate mm-hmm. sales and immediate income. I also think there's a bit of perhaps underconfidence about mm-hmm. indie books that still remains, even though things have changed since the days when it was a stigma to to self-publish. So what do you think, how can we keep that mindset of long-term and maybe be a bit more confident in preparing the ground, as you say, in case it does take off? I think you're absolutely right. With with indie publishers, they often talk about trying to appeal to what they call the whales, the people that that are super readers who make up about 92% of the audience and for a new book. The problem is that there's multiple audiences for a book. There are people who read habitually, that read five books a week or something like that. And we can appeal to them, but there's not very many of them. What you want to do is move beyond that book. And so I I say that there's another audience behind that book. And that's the audience that I call the true believers. They're the ones who look at the reviews and they look at the awards and they go out and they try to find the best books they can based upon that. And so you, as an indie author, I don't think you should just appeal to the whales. You should also be trying to appeal to that second audience. And then there's a third audience after that. And that third audience is what I call the bandwagon jumpers, okay? <laughs> yeah. Whatever there's a bandwagon that comes by, they want to jump on it. And so, for example, years ago, I was asked to help promote a book big, and I, I pushed the book Harry Potter at Scholastic. I said, oh, you know, that's the, that's the one you ought to push big. And, and at the time, that was a pretty audacious move. There had never been a number one New York Times bestselling middle grade book. And so that was that was strange. But beyond that, when we did that, there there was a market that was estimated to be about four million people for middle grade books. And we wanted to sell eight million copies, okay, to get on to uh that's what I figured they needed to do to be profitable. And so they went out and promoted that book and it sold 150 million copies. No, actually, it sold 500 million copies to date worldwide in just for the first book in the series. And it's made uh, billions of dollars for the author because I, I figured it out now. And, and Rowling ought to be up at around the $2 billion mark instead of the $1 billion mark that she became famous for passing. Mm. Um, but the point of all that is, is the bandwagon jumpers are the ones that you want to get to, okay? And you've got to pass through the true believers to get to that huge, vast audience that's that's sitting out there beyond that. 
And so as an indie author, I think you need to you need to think bigger and explore your options. Yeah, I, I agree. And as you mentioned there, you've picked books in the past. And you've also you've been a judge for lots of things, including the writers of the future. You've coached best-selling authors like Brandon Sanderson, Stephanie Meyer with Twilight, obviously, some real books that stand out. I wondered, like, how do we try to we have to write what we love in terms of genre but what makes a book stand out from the pack when it comes to awards when it comes to figuring who the true believers are I think there's so many elements it's I I happen to be lucky in that I have what I would call very mundane tastes (laughs) it's I sort (laughs) of I like the books that everybody else likes and so it's I'm not sure how to put it when I was a kid, I used to listen to songs on the radio with, with a couple of friends, and we would guess on how high they would hit on the bestseller list and how soon they would hit. And I could pick them just about every time. And I don't know why that is, but I think I just learned to gauge what public tastes are. And people want stories that move them emotionally. They want they want stories that are beautifully written. They want stories that they've never seen before, that feel original, take them to new places. There's so many different elements that I can't just talk about one. That's why I had to write a book like Million Dollar Outlines, where I talked about a number of different things, but and also talked about, okay... And beyond writing a book or or writing a book, you've also got to figure out how to sell it. And so it has to be a book that's not just about writing, but about marketing the book. And so that was the different approach that I took to this. But but I, yeah, it is. this is something that you can study and you keep finding insights the more and more you look at it. And I've been doing it now for over 30 years and I'm I'm still learning. Yeah, it's one of those annoying things, obviously, as a, a writer, is you want to write something that can become so extraordinary, but it's difficult. You've written so many books, and it seems like your Rune Lord series is the one that has been the biggest in terms of uh, the intellectual property returns. Do you yeah. think that an author would generally, you can't hit it on every book, you just have yeah. to once in a lifetime? <laughs> It's kind of funny, but when you study authors, you can almost always find one big book that did it for them. And and so you'll find a writer like, uh, let's go with Frank Herbert, okay? Yeah. His Dune is the best-selling science fiction novel of all time, but he wrote a bunch of other books that were pretty darn good. He It wasn't like he came out of nowhere, but nothing that he ever did before or after had received that kind of acclaim. And I think that there's a combination of things because sometimes I'll look at an author and I'll go, that's okay, let's take another author, Orson Scott Card. His big book is Ender's Game. He's written a couple of books that I like better than Ender's Game. I think Ender's Game is a wonderful book and I'm happy to recommend it. And I tell kids, yeah, go read this book. But but there's a couple of other ones that he's done that I like just as well or better. But somehow they didn't get the promotion that the publishers needed to put out there, or it came out at maybe the wrong time, or people uh, just didn't, just didn't uh, quite understand it because it was written for a slightly different audience. 
So you can look at something like Speaker for the Dead that he wrote, which is uh, a wonderful book. And in my opinion, I liked it even better, but but I think that it's for a different audience group. Ender, Ender's Game was for preteens, and uh, or teens, I should say, and preteens. And if you look at Speaker for the Dead, it's for a more mature audience, the kind of people who have to deal with death and dying. And you can look at something that he wrote like Lost Boys, once again, a wonderful novel, but it's more going to be more powerful for young parents to read. And so it's once again, a different audience and it just didn't get the the popularity that, that Ender's Game did. So is the secret then just to keep writing? <laughs> I think that's a big part of the secret. I think that a writer should always keep writing, always be joyful in what you're writing about. In other words, pick the things that you love to write. Ignore. Editors have been wrong so often that you should just ignore them as an entire species. What I mean by that is if you look at the best-selling books of all time, okay, when I chose Harry Potter and told Scholastic to push it big, the first remark that the, that the managing editor made was, she said, you know that book has, was rejected by the 12 biggest publishers in the the world. And I said, I, I hadn't thought about that, but but yeah, that's that makes sense because you're not the biggest publisher in the world. And I said, but editors make mistakes. And she said, I agree. <laughs> and so <laughs> we talked about how to push Harry Potter. But you look at other books, okay? If you look at, for example, the best-selling science fiction novel of all time was Dune that we mentioned a few minutes ago. It went to 42 different publishers and was published by a, a group of people that were selling books on how to fix uh, engines. Okay. So they would have a diagram of an engine and tell you what screw you needed to put in your engine to fix it. Or we had the case of a tale of two cities never did find a publisher. It went to every major publisher in the United States and England and didn't find a home. It was self-published and became the best-selling book of the next 150 years. And we can do that again with Gone with the Wind, the best-selling romance novel of all time, which went to 27 different publishers and was rejected. It's just so often that happens that I look at it and I go, if a publisher rejects your manuscript, send it to another one, (laughs) okay? (laughs) Uh, That doesn't necessarily mean that the editors were right. So often they're wrong. Just go ahead and keep pursuing it. And then, of course, as indie authors, a lot of people choosing to self-publish first. But I Mm -hmm. also think that many of us are interested in, you mentioned the film and TV adaptation for Rune Lords and recent examples of Bridgerton, which is based on books and The Queen's Gambit, some of the biggest things on Netflix in the last year. Do you think that as indie writers, it's going to be harder to get into that kind of adaptation, considering that it's the literary agencies that have a sort of way into media? Or how do you best think we can position our books? I think that what Hollywood is looking for Quite frankly, it's interesting that very often they're looking for something that nobody else has seen. They're looking for a good story about your book. So if you've got a book that you've written and let's say you put it up for some awards and it wins a couple of big indie awards, that is going to interest the folks in Hollywood. If you have good sales numbers, that's going to interest them. But ultimately, they're looking at a story. Now, when they're trying to create a big TV series, the TV series, may they may want to run it for 12 or 15 seasons. And most of the time, if you've got a novel, you probably don't have 
15, 15 volumes that you can do over 15 seasons. And sometimes when you do a season, it's only two or three books. And if you did 15 seasons, you're talking 45 novels. So it, it's hard to have a story that you sell. What they like in Hollywood are interesting characters that you can sell. In other words, something like there's a one here in the U.S. called House that you've probably seen. Oh, yes, of course. About a doctor who, who's brilliant, but a nasty person. And that one, you know, went on for several years. And we can look at, we can look at stories like The Queen's Gambit, where we've got a fascinating character. That kind of thing can go on for years. It's interesting, The Queen's Gambit as well. I think the author, uh, terrible to say, I think he's dead. <laughs> oh, really? that's, that's too bad for him because uh, he should be enjoying his success. Yeah, well, that, but that's what's interesting. It's, as you say, you never know when that might be a success. And of course, there are heirs and successes and in the future, but copyright does go on after the death of the author. So that's even very interesting as well. But I, I wondered in terms of, storytelling do you think storytelling has changed due to the popularity of binge consumption and gaming as well which offer these longer immersive stories absolutely absolutely in talking i i work with a number of movie producers and things like that and and the producer that i'm working with right now who's who took the rune lords out we, we have three studios who are taking meetings together, trying to figure out whether they want to do a big TV series or whether they want to do a, a movie series or nothing at all. It's Hollywood. You never know what they're going to do. But but one of the things that I keep looking at is, for example, they're saying, we'd like a, to see another proposal for another series. And so I'm working on that right now this week. And they're saying, and we want to see what these story arcs would be for the first eight years. And that is like plotting an eight novel series. And, and that's a big major job right there. And I think that, and that's what I'm hearing from everybody right now. Uh, we want to see a big arc that takes us through the first eight, 10, maybe 15 seasons. I just did one where they asked to see, they asked to see a dozen seasons and just get a general idea of what was going to happen, which is a huge waste for the author because then they're going to have Hollywood writers go in and actually write the thing. And it's all going to change anyway. It's <laughs> like wasted work, except that maybe they'll fall in love with some of the ideas and use some of use some of them. Then I'm fascinated. How do you personally, how are you doing that? How do you create or how do you come up with story arcs that are so big? What's your creative process? for story arcs? My creative process is I like to I like to develop the world first, okay? Because I think your characters have to grow out of the world that they live in. And so with a big fantasy like the Rune Lords, that meant sitting down and creating a map of the world and then dividing it into nations and then creating a history of each nation and some ideas about who ran it and what their imports and exports were and uh, what kinds of uh, creatures lived there, what races lived there, those kinds of questions. And then after I've created the world, then the characters, like I say, have to grow out of that. When we're dealing with an epic uh, novel, a fantasy or a science fiction, that usually means it's a story about how one uh, way of life crumbles, one, one civil civilization collapses, and a new one begins, okay? That's what epics are. And if you look at something like Lord of the Rings, this is how the story of the collapse of Sauron and how a new age began. So what we do 
is, is you start thinking about it in that term. And usually it's not just one person who brings about the collapse of a civilization. That's beyond the power of any one person. It's usually a collection of people. And some of them are going to be powerful and important people like Gandalf and Aragorn and that type of thing. And other people are going to be ignoble. They're going to be the invisible warriors, the little Frodo's who, who make a major contribution and yet nobody knows their names. And what I do is then I look at it and I say, okay, how do I weave these stories together? Let's say that I've got half a dozen major protagonists. How do I tell their story in such a way that I can captivate an audience and always keep them fascinated? You know, what revelations are going to come out? What side problems are going to need to be dealt with? What love interests are they going to have? What deep mysteries are going to be resolved? Those types of things. And it's just a matter of, basically spinning a big, fantastic yarn. You're taking each of these story threads and you're weaving them together into a, a fabric that, that people see and that becomes wonderful. Yeah, and I think sometimes we, like I've been watching a lot of Netflix, obviously, during the pandemic, and we've watched a few series, which are YA fantasy, and with the group of people and the, the one discovers their power and all of that. And it feels, you talk about this, I think, in the power of resonance in writing, that it has to be something that we've seen before, but then it has to have an edge of difference. So you, the, what you just talked about there is epic fantasy. We've seen those stories before. So what makes it different? And I feel like that's the thing that perhaps is a struggle to know where's the line between giving a story that people want to see the same sort of structure and then something that's more original. Absolutely. I think that I, I like to put it this way. When we start writing a story, we start telling a story about somebody else. We talk about Frodo or Gandalf or something like that. But by the end of the story, the reader should realize that the story is about them, okay? So I'm not writing a story about another character. I'm writing about you. And the things that Frodo learns are things that are important for you. The struggles that he goes through, you go through metaphorically. You're living through them in your imagination. And so you're going through them too. And by the end of the story, you should be Frodo. And Frodo is, that's what we're trying to do. And, uh, and I think that too often, the big problem in Hollywood is that Hollywood writers just don't get that, okay? They write stories about people that they think might be cool and interesting, but they're off at a distance. They're not bringing them into the heart of the readers. And so that's the big weakness. I could ask you questions forever, but we're almost out of time. So tell people what they can find at mystorydoctor.com and, and how do you help writers there? Okay. Help writers a number of ways. And I'm, as you've mentioned, I'm the lead judge for the Writers of the Future. You can find out about Writers of the Future at www.writersofthefuture.com. And that gives you the rules. It's one of the largest writing contests in the world. If you write science fiction and fantasy short stories, love to see those. And, and that's a huge thing that I do. At mystorydoctor.com, you can find links to my books on writing, and you can find links to my courses on writing. I teach, I have two things that are going big right now. One of them is I teach the the Apex Writers Group, and, and that's a group for writers. We're all locked in with COVID right now, 
And so we're not meeting in writing groups. And that's become really popular to have writing groups online. So I bring in major guests. I bring in editors and agents and movie producers and things like that. And we talk about writing each week. But I also put my writing courses online so that uh, you can take those in conjunction with other writers. You can meet together in productivity groups so that they we have a lot of people who write today, write together each day, and they have a, a writing sprints each day, that kind of thing. So they're really helping each other push each other's work along. And so that's one of the major things. And then the other thing is just getting to the writing courses. I've got a nice sale on uh, writing courses. I've got my super writers bundle where I've taken all of my courses and you can take them. You won't get comments from me, but you can take the courses and then you do them together with other people in your writing groups or writing friends. And it makes it very affordable to do it that way. It's $200 for all of my courses together, which is about 90% savings over what they would normally be if you took them under my direction. So those are the kinds of things that I have there. Brilliant. And I've uh, read all of your nonfiction books. <laughs> and I've met, in fact, many times I've read Million Dollar Outlines over and over again. So I really appreciate your expertise. So thanks so much for your time, David. That was great. Thank you so much. And you have a wonderful day. So I hope you found the discussion with David interesting today. And I did actually buy his course bundle, which he mentioned, and it's excellent. So definitely go check that out. And uh, this week coming up, I have an in-betweeny-sode, an interview with Arthur I. Miller, who's the author of The Artist in the Machine. And we talk about what creativity is and the various ways that humans are collaborating with AI and what he sees as the future of AI plus creativity. Then coming up next Monday, and as you see, I'm trying to do this sort of uh, in-between episodes for the topics I know not everyone is interested in the futurist type of topics and then I'm trying to keep the Monday show focused on uh, more broad topics about writing and publishing and marketing so yes next Monday I'm talking about how to write a non-fiction book proposal with Alison Jones from Practical Inspiration Publishing and how the pandemic has changed the publishing industry so I'm really looking forward to sharing both of these interviews with you in the meantime happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.